You can turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4. I would just like to share also that I'm so thankful, truly, I really am thankful for this church, for what it has meant to Natalie and I. Uh, We are just really thankful to be here. Uh, I'm really actually looking forward to March. Uh, February has been a blur of a month for Natalie and I. So much stuff has uh, gone on. I'm really looking forward to March 1st and uh, kind of being through that really crazy phase that February has been for us. And I'm really thankful to be here this morning. And I was, I was thinking about what I was going to preach on this morning. Uh, I was thinking about this question. Because what makes a church a church? What makes a church family a church family? Well, in true political fashion, I like to answer that question by asking another question. And that is, what makes a sports team a team? Because I think the answer to both of those questions is the same. Because it's not always the team that has the most skill, the most talent, or the most athletes on their team that does, uh, does well. They're not always the most successful team. You know, I, I think if you're familiar with college basketball, you know, March has March Madness, and they always usually have those Cinderella teams. Remember that team a couple of years ago? They were like a 10 seed or something. They went to the Final Four. I think it was like George Mason or something like that. that that's what I'm talking about. What, what makes a team like that? They are not as talented as a Duke or North Carolina or Kentucky. They don't have as many athletes. They don't have as much skill in terms of pure basketball talent. But yet here they are. They are winning. They are beating teams they shouldn't. What makes that happen? Well, obviously these things are important like talent and coaching, all these things. But I think what is really important is that um, something that a guy wrote about. Now, there's this guy's name is Bill Simmons. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bill Simmons. But this guy is pretty cool because he went from being a, uh, just a fan. He was an NBA and NFL fan and he had this blog. And then he was went from a blogger of NFL and NBA to being hired by ESPN to write a regular column. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, He just goes from a fan to being always there in in the midst of all the sports. (laughs) But he wrote this book. He called this book, it's called The Book of Basketball. And literally, I've read it. It's like a thousand something pages. It's like the basketball Bible, okay? It has all this history, all these stats, all these things about the game of basketball. This guy loves the game. And I, I do too, but he was talking about, um, he's talking about all these players and of all these different eras and comparing them. And what he, one of the themes throughout this book of basketball is literally, he calls it the secret. He says there's the secret of basketball, and it's the secret to winning basketball. And actually, the answer is quite surprising, because he tells this story, and he, he was in Las Vegas, and he ran into Detroit Pistons point guard, Isaiah Thomas. And they're sitting there, and, and they start talking about basketball. And he asks them the question. He's like, what's the secret? And Isaiah Thomas, he gives this very anticlimactic answer. It's not about basketball. The secret to winning basketball is not about basketball. And Simmons goes on in the rest of his book, his larger argument is the fact that, that in order for a team to win, in order for, specifically a basketball team to win, the players, they have to forfeit all of their egos, they have to forget about stats, they have to forget about all these other things, and they have to channel their individual skills towards the larger success of the team. He says, it's not about talent necessary. The biggest component in a championship team in basketball is unity. 
You can have all the talent in the world, but if you aren't united in what you are trying to do, you are not going to be successful. You can take that to any team sport. The players can't win on their terms. They have to actually give up parts of what makes them special in order to make other players special as well. They have to uh, be a unified team. And I would say that that's true of a church as well. That's not... Uh, we can go back to our original question. What makes a church a church? Is it, is it our denomination? Is it, is it our demographics? Is it our shared beliefs? Is it a building? Because if it's, uh, if it's the prettiest building is what makes a church, then the Catholics have us beat by a long shot. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the building. It's not those things. The primary ingredient of a church is unity. Being uh, unified in our common uh, bond in Jesus Christ. A unified people standing together in and for the gospel is the chief way the lost are introduced to the things of the gospel. Is unity. People that are unified that shouldn't be unified. They're standing together for the things of God. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 1. That's why he says, uh, look at verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. He's making a point here. Paul loved the Philippians. Paul loved this church. He planted this church. This was his first church that he planted in Europe. And this church was very special to him. And it's obvious there just right in that first verse, right? He says, dearly beloved, twice in one verse. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy, my crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. This church was special to Paul. You know, what makes this church special, I think, too, is the fact that they were not uh, swayed. They, they weren't deterred. They weren't turned off when Paul was imprisoned. Paul is writing this letter from a jail cell in Rome. He's actually dictating it to a guy named Epaphroditus. But anyways, he's, he's, right, he's dictating this letter from Rome. And these Philippian believers, they weren't turned off by that. You know, there's, there's sort of a social stigma, at least in these days too, that if you were in jail, it, you could kind of turn that person off. But they did not stop supporting Paul. They stood fast with him. They stood with him. Look at verse 15. Paul even testifies of this. He says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, he sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, not because I'm needy, he says, but because I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So he says, you stood with me. You supported me even when I was going away. And now, even now, as I'm in a jail cell, you have not stopped standing with me. And so it's these dearly beloved that Paul is now addressing, these people that he loves so much. And actually, Philippians 4, you can really just see Paul. He's just spilling out his love for these people. And as he closes this letter, he's chiefly concerned, I think, with the nature of Christian fellowship and, I would say, the keys to church unity, or as I like to say, gospel togetherness. He doesn't want to see this church be like other churches, succumbing to all these trivial sort of contentions, all these really silly fights and divisions in the church. He wants this church to be unified, to, be, to stand fast 
in and for the things of the Lord. And by no means do I suppose to uh, say that the things that I'm about to say are uh, a comprehensive uh, 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 look at what makes a unified church. But I believe that these are foundational truths that will lead to a church that is unified in its mission for the things of God. So really quickly, three things that I think Paul points out here in the first couple of verses of Philippians 4. And the first thing is reconcile relationships. Reconcile relationships. Look at verses 1 through 3. Listen to what he says again. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Paul, as you know, he's not, he's not a subtle man. <laughs> you can see that in all his writings, all his epistles. He, he doesn't beat around the bush, so to speak, when it comes to church matters. He just he gets right to the point. And that's what I love about Paul. <laughs> he was clear. He was succinct. And right away, as he's closing this letter, <laughs> he calls out these two ladies, <laughs> Yodius and Syntyche. Can you imagine <laughs> what their faces were like? Because it, you have to remember that when Paul is writing these letters, it's not like he's sending a mass email to the church of Philippi, and they're just reading it on their iPads or the computers at home. No, he actually sent Epaphroditus, the guy he was dictating, and Epaphroditus would then go to the church, and they would read it as a church body. It was a, a big ordeal when an apostle would write a letter to a church, and so here, the whole church is gathered. <laughs> the whole church is gathered, they're le- reading this letter, They're hearing this letter from their apostle, their founding pastor. (laughs) And then he calls out these two ladies. (laughs) I just, I would love to have seen what their faces were like. As, you know, Paphrodite is reading, and all of a sudden he's like, and Pat and Natalie, I want you to end your beef with each other. (laughs) Can you imagine how shocked they must have been? He beseeches these ladies. He says, I beseech Yodius and I beseech Syntyche. He's saying, uh, he, he, he does it individually, I think, because he wants to stress and make sure that they, they would listen. And I'm sure now they're listening up. <laughs> listen to what I have to say to you. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Be unified together in your mission for Jesus Christ. And I love that Paul, he doesn't say what their beef was about. He doesn't say why they were in conflict with each other. Maybe it was about the church, color of the church carpet, or maybe they wanted to do something else with that church event. I don't know. I think those things might have helped us, you know, in 21st century church. But the point is not what they were uh, fussing about, but I love how Paul tries to say, hey, you guys need to be reconciled. And look at how he does it. Look at verse 3. And I treat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. See what he does? He says, you guys are my fellow laborers, and your names are in the book of life. Don't forget that. 
Don't forget that how many times you may be uh, fussing and arguing and, and having all these silly contentions. He says, reconcile yourselves by looking again to the book of life. Remember that your names are scribbled with the red ink of Jesus' blood on the rolls of heaven. In the Lamb's book of life, he reminds them of their redemption, folks. He says, yes, you may have a conflict here on earth, but don't forget, you are my fellow laborers and your names are in the book. And if your names are there, they can't be erased. That red ink is permanent. He says, remember your redemption. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Find all of your agreement. Find all of your unity. Be reminded of your common calling, as he says again in verse 3, as fellow laborers for the gospel. This is how you be united. You reconcile relationships by remembering that you are reconciled to Christ, by Christ. You know, I think fellowship is, is broken, and unity is lost when we get our eyes off the cross and onto ourselves. You know, the, Latins, the Latin reformers, they had this, this phrase, or excuse me, the reformers had this Latin phrase. It was called, incurvatus in se. And what that literally means is man curved in on himself. That was usually what they would use to describe sin. And really, I think it does describe a lot of sin. But it also describes man's heart apart from Jesus. Without Jesus in your life, man, we are turned in on ourselves. Sin makes us, as it says, navel gazers. <laughs> We're just concerned about the things about ourselves. What can I get for me? How does this help me? How can I en- enhance myself? Man turned in on himself. Sin makes us navel gazers, and we become. And when we become the standard, when we become the focus, then unity then gives way to something that is very deceptive. It's called uniformity. There's a big difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity would say you have to dress like me, you have to have the same standards as me, you have to listen to the same music as me, you have to raise your kids the same way as I do, you have to have the same political beliefs as I do. Whoa. That's uniformity. That's man turned in on himself saying, I am the standard, you have to get on my standard. And, and what Paul is trying to do is that's not the standard. Christ is the standard. The unity of the church comes when we realize that we are not the standard. Jesus is. Jesus is our standard. And where uniformity says, you've got to be like me, unity in the gospel says, let's be like Jesus. Let's love like he does. Unified believers are constantly remembering the lengths to which God stooped to save them. That's what makes a unified church. Is when people from all different backgrounds, all different beliefs, all different upbringings remember that they were saved by the same grace. The grace of God that condescends to our lowest state and brings us up to heaven to glory with Him. Regardless of whether you were brought up in a church or whether you weren't, regardless of whether your parents are still married or whether you, are, you have a husband or a dad who's on his second wife, Regardless of your background, regardless of however you were raised, Jesus saves you, saves everyone in this church by the same grace, the same blood that spilled from his veins on that cross. That's what unifies us. Remembering that we are saved by the same Savior. 
And that gospel then has a hope that comes with it. It's the hope that, that nothing is too disjointed, that it can't be brought back together, be, brought, be reconciled again. That, that no one is too lost for God to find them. And that no relationship is too fractured for God to heal it. That's the hope of this gospel that Paul is trying to get these Philippians to remember. But also, I think, how true and how passionate Paul must have been for this gospel. Just think about Paul's life. Here he is. Well, just if you remember Acts 8, verse 3. This is the same man, as it says in Acts 8, 3, who was wreaking havoc on the church. And hauling men and women who believed in it, as it says there, the way which is Christianity, he was hauling them from their homes and bringing them and imprisoning them and even executing them. This is the same man that in Acts 9, verse 1, where it says he was breathing threats and slaughters against the church. And here he is, the same man. (laughs) The same Paul is here tenderly urging two ladies to be unified in their redemption. Be unified by... Remembering who saved them. Paul was radically changed by the gospel of reconciliation. And he says, guys, be reconciled by remembering the Christ who did this amazing work in me. Don't forget that. Unity begins with broken people remembering their bond to one another by the grace of the gospel. That's how unity is formed. In reconciling relationships. That secondly, also, we have to see uh, quickly that uh, not only we have to reconcile relationships, but it also involves rejoicing in the ruins. Look at verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Secondly, first was reconciling, and secondly is rejoicing. And specifically, as I love how he says, rejoice in the Lord. He repeats that phrase again. Now verse 4, of course, is a famous verse. It's on all these plaques and pictures and all these little knickknacks. Rejoice in the Lord all the way. And again, I say rejoice. But this isn't some, you know, cliche, pithy platitude that Paul is writing here. It's not just, just be happy. Don't worry, be happy, because everything is going to be all right. No, it's, he's, not, he's not singing reggae. He's, he's, not, he's not doing something pithy and just to cliche to get people to be happy. His, his foundation for this rejoicing comes in what follows. See, Paul, I love how Paul was, Paul was an excellent writer. Not just a biblical writer, but just in literary form, Paul was a great writer. Even secular scholars have agreed that Romans is one of the the most excellent pieces of writing in history. Just the way Paul lays out his arguments, the way Paul proves his arguments. uh, And here, I love that he says, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Well, you have to keep reading. He says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. He is in control. You can rejoice because God is in control. And everything that is coming in your life, everything that you have endured, has been ordained by the fingers that made the universe. You can rejoice in that. 
that the future rests with God, and so should you. That everything happens according to His divine plan, so you can rejoice in that, even though you may be going through a lot of tribulation right now, but Jesus says, rejoice in me and rest in me. He also, look at what He says, be careful for nothing. That means literally, don't worry. Don't worry about anything because God has ordained it, as he says in verse 5, so you can rejoice in it. Yes, even when you get a flat tire. Yes, even when you get in a fender bender. All these things, yes, they may not be uh, uh, perfect, but God has ordained them to happen. You can rejoice in what God has for you in that moment. And why? Because I love this verse 7. And he says, in the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God will keep you. I love that word, keep there. It literally means, it has this, has, it's conveying this idea of guarding uh, uh, as with a garrison of troops. <laughs> you think that was relevant for Paul? <laughs> he was literally being guarded by Romans and he says the, go- the peace of God is going to garrison you, it's going to guard you no matter what comes your way. I love that picture. Because as he's writing this letter in chains, he's reminding this church that their grounds for rejoicing, their grounds for unity, their grounds for reconciliation is not in men, it's not in circumstances, it's in the God who's controlling everything. The God who has his hands and his fingers in every single aspect of life. He says this God of peace is going to guard and garrison his children with his own peace. And so therefore, in all of these desperate times, in all of these desolate times, in all of these difficult seasons of life, we can rejoice in the one who rules and reigns over yet everything. Yes, even in the ruins. The ruins of a broken marriage. The ruins of a lost son or daughter. The ruins of a rebellious son or daughter. The ruins of a lost job. Or a foreclosed house. Or a friend or a neighbor who is drunk once again and we have to go pick them up again. The ruins of life. Yet even in those moments we can rejoice. Yes, even in the ruins of another mass shooting. As difficult as it has been, and I'm still trying to rack my brain around it, because I don't know why God would let things happen, but we're called to speak. We're not called to, to try and have answers for what happens. That's not your job. Your job is not to have an answer. Your job is to point to this God of peace. Your job is to point to and point people to. You know how you can get peace? You can get transcendent peace, peace that passes all understanding by putting your faith and hope in this God of peace, even in your ruins. There's this phrase that I keep rattling in my head that the, the good news of the gospel is best heard when there's a lot of bad noise around us. <laughs> Good news is best heard in, in the midst of bad noise. And that's where the gospel shines the brightest. Yes, even in our dark and bitter days, God's gospel, that's his best platform. <laughs> it wants to speak into the darkness of your life and the ruins of what has happened. And it says, put your hope and your 
trust in me, the God of peace. So reconciling relationships. Two is rejoicing in the ruins, but three, the third component and the key to gospel togetherness in church unity, I believe, is reflecting on the relevant. Look at number, uh, look at verse eight. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true and whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now, I'm sure you've heard these verses, or at least verse 8, preached about a lot. I know I did a lot uh, when I was growing up. And almost always, I think, verse 8 was used as sort of, you know, a grid for your entertainment choices. Right? It's like, is this movie, is it, is it, is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Okay, you can watch that movie now. Oh, no, you, you can't watch that movie now. Can you read that book? Well, is it, is it lovely? Is it, is it pure? Is, is, does it have a good report? Well, okay, you can read that book. But I think using this verse, yes, we should have good discernment as parents, as young people. We should have things that tell us and influence us what we're going to do with what we're going to read and set or watch, whatever. But I think it, 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 to only use this verse as a grid for biblical discernment is to miss Paul's larger point. He's not trying to correct the thought life necessarily of the Philippians. He's not just saying to, uh, to make sure that your entertainment choices are good. What he's wanting to do is point them back to the source of all truth, all honesty, all loveliness, all purity, all justice. Yes, he's wanting to point them back to Jesus Christ. He is the thing that is lovely. He is the thing that is pure, most perfectly pure. He is our best report. He's saying, think on him. I love what Alexander McLaren said. Alexander McLaren, he was commentating on this verse and he says, Thinking on these things is not merely a meditating upon abstractions, but it is clutching and living in and with and by the living, loving Lord and Savior of all. See how it changes what he's saying there? When you realize that he's talking about Jesus, he says, Don't just cling to something that's lovely. Cling to the person who is love. Don't just try and change your thought life by not avoiding those websites. Think on the one who is perfectly pure for you. He says, reflect on the relevant things, not just these real things, but on the thing, the one thing, the one person who is going to matter-of-factly change your life. Paul's command isn't to cling to things, it's to cling to a person. You know, that's what makes the religion of Christianity different than any other religion in the whole wide world. That you're not believing in some figment of your imagination. You're not believing in a brass, fat little Buddha idol. You are believing in a person who lived and breathed and had blood in his veins and breath in his lungs. And guess what? When you get to heaven, he's still going to have the same blood in his veins and breath in his lungs. The only, I think one pastor I said, uh, that I heard one time, he said, the only scars that are going to be in heaven are the ones that are on Jesus' hands and feet. (laughs) That brings me so much joy. Because it's not a force. This isn't Star Wars. We don't believe in midichlorians. 
We believe in a person who took our place, who said, yes, you are the, the, you are the wrecks, you are the sinners, I'm going to be that for you. Yes, you are the adulterer, you are the murderer, you are the drunkard. I'm going to be that for you. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We believe in that person. That living, breathing person. So Paul is is saying, make Jesus the first thing to spill out of your, your lips. Make him your first thought. Uh, flip uh, just a couple pages to Colossians chapter 4. I, I was at this conference last week and I, this guy was preaching on this verse and it just really struck me. Look at Colossians 4 verse um, 6. It says, Let your speech be always with grace, <laughs> seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Let your speech be always with grace. You know how you do that? By reflecting on this Jesus, this one who is is pure, is lovely, is just, is virtuous, is all those things for us. You know, people, when you're going around out in life, people should be so annoyed at you at how much you talk about Jesus. <laughs> I, I, people are annoyed at me enough because I don't talk about Jesus enough. But that should be our thought. That should be our our motivation. That we can't even get onto a conversation about sports without somehow turning it back to Jesus. I can do it about movies. I love doing that. But any conversation, any person you're around, they should be annoyed at the fact that how much you have to talk about this guy, this person that you love. And the more we reflect on Jesus and make him our priority, the more we will have a tendency and a magnetism about us for the things of Jesus. Imagine a church filled with people who are just magnets for Christ-likeness. You think that won't unify a church? That would unify a whole nation, I think. (laughs) That's what Paul is saying. That as a church, Philippi, don't lose sight of what this is all about. This is all about being reconciled by and being rejoicing in and reflecting on this Jesus Christ of Nazareth who came and took your place. And he says, that's how you are united. A church is not defined by their own wits or by their own knowledge, but by their reconciliation by rejoicing in and reflection on Christ. And that is their greatest witness to a world that desperately needs Jesus. You know what we're doing right here, right now, even as you're sitting in these chairs, you are testifying to the world that Jesus is alive. Even as you sit here, this is a testimony. People from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different beliefs, we are sitting together in a church unified as a family of God. You think about how crazy that is? (laughs) We are united by a grace that holds us, that would otherwise have us be separate. The world wants you diverted, wants you divided. But the gospel unites people who would otherwise be divided. And this is what makes a church a church. It's unity in Christ. It's not the bricks. It's not the mortar. It's not the morals. It's not our traditions. It's not our saints. It's not our preachers. It's the grace 
of God and the God of grace that alone cultivates and founds and sustains and empowers all of our unity. That's what we are founded on. That's what makes us us. Jesus Christ. All we are, all that we say, and all that we share, and all that we do here ought to be soaked in that reality. Soaked in a blood-stained reality of good news for us that Christ was crucified instead of us. That's what will unite us. That's what will keep us together. That's what will draw us together. The unity of the church is found alone in the grace of the gospel. So I don't know what brought you here this morning. I don't know uh, if you're a new time visitor or if, if you were really struggling to get out of bed this morning. Struggling to put on some semblance of an outfit to come into church. God brought you here for a reason. I think it's to remind us that we have the good news. And what are we doing with it? Is Jesus the first thing that spills out of our mouth? Or is it how frustrated we are at the traffic on the turnpike? Is Jesus the first thing that spills out of our mouth? Or is it that we're still so annoyed by that person who wronged us that one time? Paul is saying, brothers, sisters, find your unity. Don't forget your common ground. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Let's pray.